Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host Titus and today I'm joined by my friend Carl Eric Scott to talk about the new Dan Gilroy Denzel Washington movie, Roman J. Israel Esquire, which has earned Denzel Washington yet another well-deserved Oscar nomination and brings us to Dan Gilroy again, the man who wrote and directed Nightcrawler, which earned him an Oscar nomination as a writer in 2014. A very interesting man about whose work we'll talk at some length today and it's a very interesting character he has written a man in search for justice a man who is in some ways stuck in the 60s in the era of civil rights and the struggle for rights for black people and who at the same time seems of some urgent importance now in the way law is practiced and justice is somehow in question in america hello carl thanks for joining me Thank you, Titus. I'm so glad you chose this film. It's available for the first time in, on DVD. Yes, the movie has not gotten enough attention, and I know we both lament that, and I only gave it my attention on your recommendation, so you've already changed one mind. Maybe you can do more. But because the movie has not gotten so much attention, I'll give a brief overview of the plot, trying not to spoil too much. We apologize if we'll end up spoiling too much in the conversation, but we promise you, however much you know of the story, you'll still enjoy seeing it and enjoy thinking and talking about it even more and maybe reviewing it. It is quite powerful. The movie seems to me to be a morality play, and I say that with great complimentary intentions. So the story is set in our times in L.A. Roman J. Israel is a lawyer who practices criminal defense, but whose heart really is in reforming the American justice system. He is somehow stuck in the 60s or 70s. The music he loves, the way he dresses in a very old suit, his fro, which has seen better days, but it's still there. He's still defiant. He's an incredibly intelligent man. He's not just a high IQ. He has a prodigious memory. He has a great diligence about the law. He's an expert on technique. He's an expert on details. He's a man who has dedicated himself to mastering the law. He's not good, however, at going to court, and he's no good at talking to audiences or teaching law. His relationship to the law has made him very much alone. He's renounced family for the sake of the law. He's put his all in a firm that now comes to a crisis. His senior partner, who had inspired him as a young man to pursue justice in America, is now dying. He's a very old man. He's in the hospital. The business is closed up because it's never profitable to defend poor people. He gets a new opportunity of a kind from another young man who was inspired by his now legendary senior partner and boss. This young man, played by Colin Farrell, is a modern lawyer. He dresses very well, and he knows the business inside out, and he knows that you have to be personable to people, to have manners to your clients, to your partners, and to everyone else involved so that you can get along, but he doesn't much believe in justice. He seems to only believe in it as much as it took him to get through law school, which at some point he confesses he only did because of that legendary professor. This is an America where there aren't great social protests and great struggles in the law or the courts for civil rights for black Americans, but where the outcry against injustice is as loud if on different subjects. And this young man who is white, George Pierce, runs a very successful business. He has done well for himself by the law, and he says he feels a certain debt to his old professor and mentor, and so he's going to try to take Roman J. Israel on. This leads Roman to his crisis 
and as the first half of the movie is an extraordinary study of this character, the second half of the movie is the tale of his corruption, downfall, and the conclusion is some strange form of martyrdom or redemption which has left critics puzzled and will try to puzzle out for you. That, I think, about does it for the overview. Carl, yeah. tell me your thoughts on the movie. Yeah, I think the thing that I enjoyed about it the most, this reflects my background as a teacher in political science and someone who's taught constitutional law, is that there's a great deal of seriousness about combining activism with knowledge of the law. And this seems Roman J. Israel's great virtue. I'm reminded of a film made for television called Separate But Equal, which is a far better presentation of Thurgood Marshall than the recent movie Marshall, which was just kind of okay about a single case. But Separate But Equal, where Marshall is played by Sidney Poitier, what's so powerful about that is you get not just the usual melodrama around the black struggle for justice in the South, but you get the legal details. It's a film that educates you as you go along. Roman J. Israel Esquire has a similar feel. There's a seriousness about justice, but also a seriousness about knowing the law, the legal details that might allow one to advance its cause granted in a very different era in which the obviousness of the civil rights cause is not maybe as vivid to most Americans as it was in the 60s and the 70s. So that's the setting or the overall tone of the film that I liked. Of course, the main attraction is this fascinating character. We know from an interview by Denzel Washington that he felt that this character was on the autism spectrum, but it's very much at that end of the spectrum where it's blending with sober genius. Roman J. Israel has his concerns about plea bargaining and its corrupt use in our legal system. We see him very expert, but in an old-fashioned way. There's lots of legal pads, cases with evidence. We see some elaborate notes developed over decades by Roman J. Israel. So it's really, in one sense, jerry-rigged, but on the other hand, very expert development of a knowledge of the law that Roman has developed. Seeing this character and how he operates is interesting, and then seeing how he operates once the whole structure of his world is removed. I mean, the law firm was his life. He had kind of a monastic devotion to this life. There's even suggestions that maybe he was a little exploited in that. His idealism was maybe a little taken advantage of by this esteemed senior partner. That was okay for him, but now where is he going to fit is the initial problem of the movie. Yeah, I'm with you all the way. So he's all of a sudden in a position to confront a contemporary law practice in LA without any preparation for it. Denzel plays a man who's really not good at speaking. He has all the education you'd expect of a law graduate of some prestige. It's because he doesn't understand people, is not good at dealing with them, and doesn't want to either. His interactions yeah. with people inevitably reveal to him early whether they share his commitment to justice or not. And that makes yeah. it very hard for him to like people or pay attention to them or treat them with any respect if they don't. His reaction to upstarts and to prestigious lawyers who dress in very expensive ways and joke around the offices, you're just tourists. Yeah. The courts of justice aren't your life, you're just tourists. He's almost a blast from the past, or Rip Van Winkle, who brings this older commitment to justice in the civil rights tradition. There's reference to various legal figures in that movement, Bayard Rustin, for example. 
On the other hand, he's up to speed on criminal justice practices as they exist in 2017. So he's this interesting combination of in his field, he's expert, but in terms of the overall social stuff, he's completely out of it. The movie makes a point of putting him in these older, late 1970s styles. He's held on to this Walkman from the 80s, and all the music is 70s or earlier. A lot of jazz, a lot of funk, Afro-consciousness type music that he enjoys. It's a very good soundtrack. Again, he's not very well equipped to transition into any new role. I mean, we see two possible roles for him offered up. One is he's going to be a lawyer in this fancy L.A. firm run by George Pierce, the character played by Colin Farrell. But there's immediate misfits with that new role. He doesn't get along with a lot of the other flashy lawyers there. He accuses them the film suggests pretty much rightly so of being fairly mercenary in their approach to the law. So that's not really working out for him very well. The other possible new role we see is he connects with these contemporary civil rights activist group, staffed by young people who are doing social media stuff, apparently. And he's asked to speak at an um, activist event, and it doesn't go well. Perhaps his language is too elaborate, grounded in legal technicalities. He's just not that great a speaker, great at connecting with people. There's a certain arrogance you might read into what he's putting forth. And there's this scene where he gets in trouble with the audience because he notices, I see that there's some sisters here who don't have seats and the brothers have not stood up and done the chivalrous thing and given them their seats. And that opens them up to a hostile young woman accusing him of being sexist or out of touch. And the, that meeting just degenerates and it's a total failure. He cannot connect at least with the rank and file of the newer social justice civil rights crowd. That's significant. The film is exploring whether there's going to be a place for this man. Yes, there's something about that failed attempt at organizing new protests and educating young people about the law. It somehow depends on dignity. Roman J. Israel insists on his esquire, which nobody yeah. understands anymore. One of his clients, a mother who's mortgaging her house to defend her son in court and who risks everything. You see the stakes for her and how seriously he takes her. She asks him, what does that mean, esquire? And he doesn't go very far in explaining medieval squires but he says this it's somewhere in between above a gentleman but not as far as a knight yeah that's right and that's his self-understanding in a nutshell it is both pretentious and condescending and obsolete but it also shows his devotion to justice and his understanding that some of this is a fight you can't be as right. comfortable as a gentleman should be and you pointed out carl he has an extreme discipline about his life and about mastering the law in the service of justice he understands that the law and justice rarely meet but he wants more of that and he is willing to do everything he can to get there he also assumes that that means something chivalrous about black people, that their struggle for dignity involves a certain self-command that has been rejected by democracy precisely because of the revolutions of the 60s. He talks more like the Port Huron statement than woke journalists do today. <laughs> and yeah. this crowd of activists 
activists, most of them of various colors, like America's cities, some of them white, many of them with tattoos, weird hair colors and piercings and all the things that weird young people might use as statements of their personal defiance. This crowd doesn't have any respect for him, they defer in no way to him, and they treat him with vulgarity because he's so old-fashioned, because he's so obsolete. At some point, his one friend in the movie, Maya, the lady who runs this organization and invites him to speak there, she has to berate some young man who despises him and disdains him, saying, you stand on his shoulders. But it turns out that the new generation has no respect for the people who made up the world in which they have all these freedoms. And Roman J. Israel is just not prepared to deal with that. Yeah, so in the Roman J. Israel Esquire style of activism, which I've associated with Thurgood Marshall and Bayard Rustin, I think Gilroy is presenting that as having a dignity, an almost aristocratic flavor to it, that present-day activists, to their discredit, cannot work with. Maya is the exception, and she becomes a possible love interest or friendship with Roman as the film develops. But I think there's a real criticism there of present-day activism. I'd like to say a little more about the political flavor of Roman's activism as well. Viewers from any different political persuasion can respect it. As someone who approaches constitutional law in a more originalist fashion, I frankly don't know that I agree with his use of a massive class action suit to affect change in the plea bargaining area. And I'm not sure, I just don't have the knowledge of this in terms of our criminal justice system of how corrupt the plea bargaining system is. I'm sure it's somewhat corrupt, but the film really presents it as radically corrupt, a major source of injustice to black Americans today. I don't think you have to agree with any of that to respect this man and respect what he represents. There's a couple of interesting contradictions in his approach to politics or even his character. He is, as we've already suggested, on the one hand, aristocratic, the esquire, the manners, the insistence upon chivalry. But on the other hand, he's very democratic. He's very humble, monastic in the way he's served his cause for justice. There's a powerful scene where he stands up for a homeless person that he believes has passed away. He resists police authority in an effort to make sure that his body is disposed of in a dignified way. He has some powerful lines that he says as that happens. So that's interesting, the aristocratic and the democratic coming together. The other thing that's interesting is that he often uses the word revolutionary. He wants a revolution in America's legal system. But he's also very, again, dedicated to the law. He sees that the most powerful activist moves can be made by using the law or leveraging the law. So on the one hand, he's dedicated to the American Constitution, or at least dedicated to using it in the most powerful way. Then on the other hand, he's still, and and this, again, may be a little dated and even childish, still devoted to this idea of activism that has a revolutionary flavor. I agree. He really comes from a different generation and the film insists on showing you the strengths of that generation, even if it shows you that it's hard to communicate that anymore and it's hard to inspire that. Yeah. Roman is caught in a political contradiction. He insists on race. He doesn't like how black people are treated and he resents the indignities of life because if you're black, they can always be tied up to being black. But on the other hand, his politics is not 
not race politics, it's class politics. He has dedicated mm. himself yeah. to helping poor people. He resents lawyers who make money because yes. they don't take care of the people who need justice but can't afford it. Right. And this is, of course, typical of the 60s civil rights struggle that to some extent it was a race problem, to some extent it was a class problem. The movie is not better at showing this than anything else in American culture, but it's a very interesting contradiction to notice politically, partly because it also shows that there's a certain way forward. Combining something aristocratic like mastery of the law and dedication to high principle with something utterly democratic like justice for all would mean this, taking responsibility for the poor. And this may be something that black people and white people can share and something that is an all-American good. And as you pointed out about the Constitution, Roman does have an all-American dedication to the Constitution. Unlike most Americans, he also happens to know the law extremely well and he tries to use it. He is, as you put it, also caught in a legal contradiction. On the one hand, he understands that the legal system is unjust. On the other hand, he believes that the principles of the law are not unjust. They're just used in a bad way. And his main problem is with the discretionary use of the law. Judges who hold him in contempt. He has problems with DAs and assistant DAs who don't offer him plea deals that are, he thinks, good enough for his clients. It's not the principles of the law that he fights against as much as the inhuman way they are applied. And he doesn't believe people are evil. He believes they are lazy. That's just like he accuses the mercenary, not so much of their greed, but of being tourists about justice. He accuses the DAs not so much of careerism, although he does do that, as of laziness. They don't want to take the time and make the effort to know every person's name, to really consider a case. You can see how much this wounds him, and it must be tied up with why he doesn't want to do court. He says that court is the brutality of the law. And Mm. that shows how high his conception of American justice is. Yeah, it's very interesting to have this dedication to something that you don't want to be on the front lines or or nitty-gritty of. Something to think about there. I think the question before us then is, can this throwback and highly principled character, now that he's tossed into 2017, as it were, can he function there? Can he use his great storehouse of legal knowledge and talent to do something for justice in the modern American world? And initially, the signs are not good. He gets this job with George Pierce, the fancy law firm, and things are not really going well there. But eventually, some things turn around for him and we're going to give away some major spoilers here in a moment to tell you what those things are but he comes to a point where George and the law firm realize he's got talent and that they can use him and they make this implicit deal with him Roman has this brief that he carries around in one of those old-fashioned legal cases about plea bargaining He believes it's a class action that could go to the Supreme Court and, in his words, revolutionize the criminal justice system, get rid of a lot of the discretionary plea bargaining that we've been talking about. So this is his life goal for justice in America. And the legal firm, once it starts to actually come around to seeing Roman's talents and virtues, one of the plums or temptations they offer him is, well, you're going to do our fancy legal work for these rich clients. And that is also legal work that involves, let's face it, and we see this in one scene, overcharging other clients on the basis of the prestige of the law firm. 
So Roman initially won't do that at all. Maybe two thirds into the film, we see him in one scene resigned himself to doing that. And part of the motivation is that this law firm has promised that they will on the side support him in filing this life goal class action suit. So what is it that brings him into this compromised position, you might say, or what is it that, if you look at it in another way, opens a door for him to function in contemporary society? It's a particular case that involves a young man who's been an accessory to a murder, giving him privileged information about the hideout of the young man who really did the murder. Roman uses this to try to plea bargain for the man who told him this, and this is the way we witness the corruption of the plea bargaining system and it doesn't work out he doesn't do it according to the firm's rules and this exposes the firm to legal jeopardy criminal malpractice right but also this young man is taken out in prison he's killed by associates of this murderer gangster there's also this reward money that's sitting out there an armenian ethnic organization one of its family members was related to the original murder victim has put this substantial reward out there so roman uses his knowledge that he gained in attorney client privilege to tell them where this murderer is likely hiding and to get the reward money this does two good things it allows the murderer to come to justice uh, he is arrested and it rescues roman from poverty at that point he's facing losing his job at the firm and we just see from a number of different things that his funds are running out his time is running out his career is not going to start he's in danger of just being tossed aside so this infusion of cash from the reward is something that he really needs and the audience is really sympathetic to him getting that money but ultimately this is a sin a wrong action yeah, he uses privileged information for his private ends. It's, of course, both against the law and will probably end with him disbarred. And it's also deeply immoral for him to seek out a private advantage. But here, Roman is at his lowest. He didn't trust that the firm would work their bones off to save that boy who was just an accessory from being treated like the murderer himself. And so he tried to do it. But as always, he failed because he doesn't understand how to deal with people. He doesn't understand how deals are made. And this leads to the boy's death because he's not in protective custody in jail because of the disagreement between Roman and the assistant DA about the deal for plea bargaining. He feels guilty about that, but he also realizes that there's no way for him to work as a lawyer. He tried to do justice. He tried to use what justice in America now requires in criminal trials, which is a plea bargain. And it not only backfired, but it led to a death and to his own destruction. And so he does something corrupt to get rich. It seems like for a short time, he wants to know why do all these people do it? What the hell mm -hmm. do they think they're going to get? And so he tries to live like them for a while. A bit of luxury yeah. to get a fancy apartment, to get fancy suits and be treated as the kind of man who indulges such tastes and commands such status. That's his temptation. Yeah. And well, I would just say that there's two legal wrongdoings, the plea bargain deal that doesn't work out. I think the film leaves it a little ambiguous whose fault that is ultimately. Was it this corrupt and stubborn woman who he was trying to make the deal with? Was it him pressing it too hard? Was it the system generally? It's not crystal clear that it's Roman's fault that this young man is killed by the gang in prison. 
However, the second one, the taking of the reward money, is clearly wrong. It clearly violates client-attorney privilege. There's a number of reasons why that's a, an important rule for a legal system to have. Sort of the third wrong thing is a dramatic shift. It shocks us at first that Roman, of all people, would try on the role of being the fancy pants lawyer who's got the beautiful apartment, the nice clothes, everything up to date. But it's pulled off, I think, quite well, culminating in a, a masterful scene where he's having a dinner with maybe romantic connotations with the activist Maya, and she's pouring her heart out to him about her young woman difficulties with being idealistic and is it really going to work out? Does she really have the integrity that she publicly projects? All the problems that a young activist might have. And what's so poignant about it is that that's the very point in which Roman has abandoned all of that idealism. She's going to him for this wisdom about how to be a social justice activist with integrity. And that's the very moment when he's temporarily put that aside. It's an interesting shift that you don't see very often in a movie where a character convincingly really changes in a brief period of the plot. Yeah, so this woman on the one hand is a bit ashamed of herself because this is a very elegant place and she didn't dress for the occasion. And on the other hand, she's doubting herself because one of her trusted interns told her, you know, I'm just doing this for the resume. I put in my time and I'm out. I'm going to make it. And she feels betrayed and she wonders whether anybody really believes in justice. Right. On the other hand, Roman is worried about, he thought the food would be better if it's so expensive. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it... Yeah, and so one of the things that Roman's story itself has caused us to ask is, is our society one that necessarily chews up and just neglects and throws out people who have integrity and who fight for justice? And that's part of what Maya is struggling with. Does she have a viable life when she sees that this man Roman she admires has really been put in a very vulnerable position? No family really to back him up. He does not have a wife or children there is nothing that was put aside for him by this noble threadbare law firm that he fought for for so many years. So there's a way in which he's really getting screwed by his devotion to justice. <laughs> She's right to ask about the long-term viability of this life dedicated to social justice. Again, very strangely, she's asking that at the very moment when Roman's given up on that. But he actually does eventually repent and returns um, the ransom money, and we'll talk about that in a moment. I mean, in the script, I think it says that he only really spent about $5,000. On the screen, it looks like a lot more than that. He's really living the life of a very plush lawyer. And this is the moment where we see George Pierce and the other people in the law firm really getting happy with Roman. He's going along with their scheme of jumping up their lawyers' fees by representing themselves as the greatest law firm there ever was. And George Pierce takes him to a basketball game. It's all the perks of a fancy lawyer's office. And that's the point where he says, you know, you keep doing this. It's great what you're doing for us. Down the line, we'll support you in submitting this brief against plea bargaining that's so valuable to you. So life moving forward looks like it could be, by some calculations, a good one. You compromise, well, quite a bit in your daily lawyer work, but you still get to do your social justice thing in the end, and you get to wear fancy clothes and be and happy. Laker fun. seats. I mean, this is important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good seats at the Laker game. Yeah, he's given charge of a pro bono part of the business so that he can do what he wants as they think, and at the same time make them look very moral, very prestigious, and they're going to get even richer out of it. 
This movie is big on practical proofs. George Pierce is persuaded that Roman is a useful lawyer because there's lots of people asking for him because he's done so much for people for so long. Yeah, and well, he's really he good. Realizes, okay, this reputation is actually useful. I never thought about being moral before, but now I can kind of see the point. This is not to say that he's simply as mercenary as this, but this is presented a lot. To some extent, the struggle to get back from corruption to, if not innocence, then some kind of justification for Roman himself is tied up with his fear that he's going to be murdered by the real murderer and exposed by people who know the ugly truth about what he did with the privileged information and his own private corruption. So this is always tied up with life. It's never just ideas yeah. or ideals. And I think that's one of the advantages of the movie, especially as it moves into the third act act where you see all of a sudden things that you weren't led to believe were gonna happen. You're told, for example, at some point that the movie takes about three weeks from the death of this old mentor to Roman's own time of trial and tribulation in which he meets these two persons, Maya and George, the young hotshot lawyer who already leads a firm. And he is led into the desert where he's chased by a black shape he thinks will kill him. And then he has to face that and return to the city Mm. and take his punishment at the hands of the law. What does that mm. remind you of? Yeah, help me out here. He's led out to the desert. What'd you say, chased by a black shape? Yeah, that's gonna kill so him, like, the Dodge like Charger. Or, yeah. yeah, this is the temptation yeah. of Christ in the desert. Yeah, 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 that's nice. So we should tell viewers that the film begins with someone typing something, a legal brief. Actually, it turns out to be Roman's got a brief against himself. The Roman of the very last part of the film who's decided he's going to confess what he's done. Now, again, he He's prompted to this by the murderer letting him know in a prison interview, I know what you did. I'm going to get back. Now, how would the murderer get back? He could maybe murder Roman or he could expose him to all the legal ramifications. Granted, though, Roman's is pretty smart character. He might have been able to fight that revelation. His corruption, although it happens in an extreme manner, very quickly, he ultimately rejects it. He has this moment in the desert. He has this realization that he is going to confess to the cops. And he's writing out this brief of the sins that I have committed, the way in which I did this one particular serious legal wrong. And I think also there's this confession of the fact that at least for a couple weeks in his life, he betrayed his earlier life of self-sacrificial service to the cause of justice. And this gets us into some of the deeper themes of the film. His name is pretty interesting, not just the Esquire part. Roman J. Israel. We have an evocation, I think, of two sources of law. The Roman secular law that has been so respected, one of the things the Romans handed down to us, and then Israel, the law of God. What then does the J stand for? It might, we think, stand for Jesus or a suggestion that you need mercy to go along with the law what's between Rome and Israel. It's not hard to answer. J stands for Jesus. But I think it also means something else starting from that. That is to say that Jesus was killed for his standing in between Rome and Israel. Mm. There's no way to make the requirement of law to give to every person his just desserts really work out. And at mm. some point this will come to a catastrophe of the character of a sacrifice. That's why I pointed out to what extent the third act is a passion play, a temptation in the desert and trying to redeem himself by martyrdom. Roman ends up babbling sort of prophetically about the true character of sin and forgiveness 
at the yes. end. And he seems to have understood something that's tied up with what he wanted. The briefcase he always carries around that he never lets go until it hits the ground. This contains his idea that you have to get rid of plea bargaining as a system because it is essentially unjust and un-American. That's because people don't get their day in court. And that's what you're supposed to get, your day in court. You will be tried by a jury of your peers. This is promised under English common law, under the constitution, and now it's no longer practiced in the most important things, criminal justice. That denies the dignity of personhood, so far as the law is concerned, and this is stressed by the fact that assistant DAs and such don't know the names yeah. of cases, yeah. the people they're trying, because it's just another one. He insists on that, but what in this world can give you that perfect justice with where each man, with his private life, with his particular fate, with his own name, is recognized and dignified and judged? Roman right. is not against judging. He's not against justice. He doesn't want everybody out of jail. He wants right. that the law do justice, and that means take each man personally. But the law can never do that. The law is right. general and will always make mistakes. What he's looking for is beyond. This is why in his brief against himself, he appeals to an absolute universal law that has some relationship to, say, universal rights, to the natural rights in which Americans believe that each one individually has them. But it also appeals beyond all human constraints and conventions to God. Yeah, I don't think that's too stretched. Some critics have criticized the ending of the film as pat, is that George Pierce is inspired to take this brief against plea bargaining and to file it. And, and so there's this sense that Roman's cause will be vindicated in the end. Um, but in fact, Roman was going to confess anyway. There's a way in which Roman has the integrity to bring the human law together with the universal law. But again, I, I think this ending may have more to it than many critics realized. It's sad they harmed this film, and we don't have a lot of films these days that are character studies of this kind or that have this kind of close look at our societal fabric. So it's a shame that a number of critics harmed this film's trajectory. I think as Titus is suggesting, there's more to this ending than meets the eye. It is tied up with the beginning of the film very closely. I would add two further things to this. One of them is that in as much as the movie seems to lose plot coherence or the plausibility of the previously established setting, it's a necessary effect of Roman living up to the principles he realizes he had always been pursuing but he had never quite touched on. Partly because he's unused to people, and partly because he's such a master of the technique of the law, he never thought through what is the spirit of the law, what is mm. our dearest hope, to be known and justified, each personally. And as he begins to realize this, he turns into a strange character, and he gets a strange ending, mysterious for that reason. As for the ending, where his brief is finally filed, we see George Pierce take it into a court of law, actually, and a lady who's a clerk file it, enter it into the record. It's going to become public. It's finally going to become public, his life's work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a little like the apostles telling the gospel of Jesus, something like that. Because it is a show of providence. He will triumph by his sacrifice. In his mm -hmm. disgrace, he can give justice to America. Mm -hmm. and that's not something we see a lot of at the movies. Yeah, that's very well put. The simplest thing to say is that it's a triumph on Denzel Washington's part. You know, I went into the film, I hadn't even noticed that he was the lead actor. Uh, it was only after that I 
oh, that's Denzel Washington that did that. I mean, that's how much he inhabited this character in a way created his character. There's a good interview on IMDb where Gilroy and Washington talk about the film and it's clear that Gilroy, he didn't overwrite the character. He gave Washington room to create things himself. So it's a triumph of writing and directing but also of, of acting and so... Yeah, it's a great relationship and you yeah. can see what advantage there is for a writer-director to find such a man. I know you told me about this interview that on the one hand Dan Gilroy, the writer-director, did it specifically with Denzel in mind. On the other hand, for that reason, he trusted him to come up with a character that could make this story really plausible to the audience and take it through its paces, through all these strange thoughts and these strange turns that we have mentioned and try to puzzle out giving a coherence and plausibility and just the excitement of watching and the suspense, it's very hard to do in a movie that's so concentrated on one character. Yeah. Well, in talking to you, I'm eager to see it again, and we recommend it highly to our listeners. Yes. See it? It's both a tough and a deep all-American story about the character of justice and where it fits even in contemporary America. For that reason, the ending is actually much more hopeful than people would seem, although it is mysterious. Carl, thanks for joining me. Hope we have shown our audience just how moved we were by this movie and moved to think about what it tries to show us in a dramatic, emotional way, but a coherent way, ultimately. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity, Titus. I really appreciate it. All the best, and let's do this again soon, Carl. Okay, very good. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.